This is The Space Shot, episode 239 for January 8th, 2018. The Cosmosphere Podcast, episode 4, Triumph and Tragedy, part 2. Hey everyone, welcome to The Space Shot, your daily space history, pop culture, and news fix. I'm John Molnix. I've got a few quick updates before we start on the second part of the latest Cosmosphere podcast. Yesterday, Star Trek Discovery started back up for the second half of its first season. This was a very fun episode to watch. In the first few minutes when they were talking about quantum signatures not matching, I had a feeling we had just crossed over into the Mirror Universe, and boy was I right. The Mirror Universe episodes in Star Trek have always been some of my favorite, and from what it looks like, we're about to boldly go into the Terran Empire. If you've been on the fence about watching Discovery, go back and watch it from the beginning. This is the best first season of Star Trek, hands down. The writers and actors have jumped into an established universe, made it their own, and they've been able to keep what's special about Star Trek. This episode is probably in my top 10 all-time favorite Star Trek episodes. It's that good. Yesterday, SpaceX successfully launched a Falcon 9 on the secret Zuma mission. These classified payloads are fun to watch because the webcasts shift to more detailed coverage of the first stage landing instead of the second stage. Seeing a Falcon 9 come back to land never gets old, and this makes me really excited to see the launch of the Falcon Heavy here at the end of the month, because there's going to be multiple landings of the first stage boosters if launch is successful. The launch and landing of the Falcon 9 on Sunday starts off the year on a great note for SpaceX. Go Falcon Heavy! Now, let's dive into part two of the Cosmosphere podcast. We'll hear from Carla Stanfield about some news and events at the Cosmosphere, and then I'll have a conversation with Brad Neust, where we talk about some of the darker chapters in NASA history. Here's part two of the Cosmosphere podcast. Now it's time to chat with Carla Stanfield about what's up at the Cosmosphere. Carla, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, John. So January is going to be a busy month, it sounds like. (laughs) Yeah, we have a couple of different things going on, that's for sure. I think our whole 2018 so far is looking busy, but exciting. That is good. (laughs) So our first um, kind of exciting new thing is that we're going to be bringing back in the Hidden Figures movie, sort of as preparation for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We'll be showing that this uh, excuse me, the first weekend in January, the 5th and 6th, and then the second as well, the 12th and 13th. Um, That'll be at our retro movie price for $5. You can see all of our showtimes on our website. And that will be linked to in the show notes. So check it out. (laughs) Perfect. And then we will have our second annual community celebration on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So following probably one of our more widely, um, attended events here in the community at at the Baptist Church across the street, we will open our doors for a community reception. So at that event, we'll have some vocal performances, some dance performances, um, some little snacks, some entertainment. But the big thing that we're really excited about is we'll have a brand new Rotunda exhibit opening in January. 
And that exhibit is going to focus on the contributions and accomplishments of several African-American astronauts. Very cool. Because it used to be there was some like Apollo 17 stuff and then there was a um, a couple artifacts from that mission. And then there was mm-hmm. also like the Blackbird ejection seat. So it's like the whole rotunda then has been updated. It'll be the south side of the rotunda. The The Blackbird exhibit stays. Okay. But the south side of that museum rotunda, we, we change out about every six months or so. A shifting exhibit. So okay. that'll be up for about six months. So you have from January through, let's say, June to come and see that. And I'll definitely be out there before it's gone. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> what else is going on um, in January? Then we have our normal slated uh, monthly events, our Coffee at the Cosmo and our Space Out Saturday. Coffee at the Cosmo is the third Thursday every month. We offer a presentation and coffee and snacks here for free for the public. Uh, In January, the topic will be the International Space Station and the speaker will be Daniel Bateman. He is actually the public programs manager at Exploration Place over in Wichita. Very cool. Um, so we're excited to have Daniel here and hear from him. And then the third Saturday of each month, we offer our free Space Out Saturday. So it's geared towards families. This is, again, a public event. Lots of these activities are free. Um, we have activities for children in our innovator workshop area. We have a special story time for kiddos. And then we have a children's um Space Trek is what it's called, okay. but it's a special tour just for kiddos through our uh, museum. Anyhow, Saturday, Space Out Saturday in January's the theme will be snowflakes because we're getting into the, hopefully, <laughs> the time of year where we'll be seeing snow. And we're going to learn why snowflakes are all different, how they're formed, and then we're going to invite children to make their own. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I would trade you for the snow that we currently have as I'm looking out my window right now. I'll trade you uh, no snow for the snow I've got. So, Deal. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's one other thing that's coming up in January that I am personally very, very excited about. And that is some of the consoles from the Moker that are going to be arriving in uh, Hutch. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we're, we're still waiting on some of the exact details, but about the middle of the month, we expect the consoles from Johnson Space Center to arrive here in Hutchinson for the beginning of that restoration project. So, yes, we are very excited about that. The end goal of the project is to completely recreate those consoles, not recreate them, excuse me, maybe refurbish is the better word there. Yeah. So they will look like the 1960s era, Apollo era modules, but they will function, the capabilities of the computers will be modern. A little bit easier to show off what they did when you've got a modern computer <laughs> behind it and not something old and you don't have to worry about spare parts and all that stuff. So, Yeah, I think they'll have slightly faster computing uh, <laughs> capabilities than what was there just a little bit faster (laughs) maybe slightly more memory as well (laughs) so yeah we are we're excited about getting that project underway and you should be seeing more in the news on that as we get a little bit closer 
Well, Carla, thank you for joining us um, again here this month. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to next time. Wonderful. Thanks, John. Be sure to check out the event calendar in the show notes for more detailed information about the upcoming events at the Cosmosphere. We're finishing today's episode with my conversation with Brad Neust, the Director of Education at the Cosmosphere. The theme that I was thinking of for this month is triumph and tragedy, and I think the following conversation covers the low points as well as the high points of some of the most difficult times in American spaceflight. Today I'm talking with Brad Neust about the Apollo 1, Challenger, and Columbia disasters. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Glad to have you back. We're starting starting to have uh, returning guests here now, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Absolutely. So we're going to start off today with Apollo 1. Um, It's now basically been 51 years since the Apollo 1 disaster uh, killed astronauts Roger Chaffee, Virgil Gus Grissom, and Ed White in a fire on the launch pad. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that mission. The accelerated timetable for Apollo, how did that play into this disaster? Well, in 1961, John F. Kennedy declared that we were going to go to the moon and that we were going to do so before the decade was out. And this was only three weeks after um, the first Mercury flight with Alan Shepard, and he was the first American to go into space. And so that program had to happen very quickly, and uh, a lot of technology had to be invented just, just to be able to to make the uh, trip to the moon. And so we were trying to beat the Russians to the moon. We were in the height of the Cold War. And uh, the accelerated time scale definitely played into that because there was tremendous pressure on um, the contractors to get the, the spacecraft done on time so that we could so that we could make Kennedy's deadline. And so unfortunately, because of that, shortcuts were taken, mistakes were made. And uh, that did lead to the tragedy. That was a, a major factor in the in the tragedy in Apollo One. And it sounds like, from what I re- remember reading about the disaster, is during the testing they had had a lot of Velcro just to make things easier to hang up in the spacecraft. And right. when you've got things that are flammable like that, it doesn't really doesn't really help the situation out. So was that part? Do you think that played into Absolutely. kind of that just? There were a lot of there were flammable materials on board the spacecraft, and uh, in fact, uh, they were supposed to have been removed, and then they were, and then they were put back in later. So uh, there were engineers that realized that this was a problem, and then it was addressed, and then later on, some a lot of this flammable stuff was was put back into the spacecraft. the uh, The environment was pressurized with 100% oxygen, so anything that can burn in that environment will burn yeah. in a big way yeah so. after the fire there was a lot of things that were done to redesign the command module there's a lot of new safety procedures that were initiated um let's talk a little bit about that because i mean it's not something that we didn't just you know say oh the fire happened and then we moved on we learned from it we found out what caused it we found out how to mitigate those type of instances in the future so let's talk a little bit about that okay well one of the one of the major redesigns was the hatch and the hatch on uh, on Apollo 1 on that command module 
open to the inside and it was basically a, a plug tie patch which sealed because of the greater pressure inside the spacecraft than the uh, outside air and so uh, because of that it was very very difficult to get open and when the fire happened the pressure which was already greater than the outside air increased even more and it made it nearly impossible for the astronauts to get the hatch open and so and then uh, the, the uh, technicians on the outside struggled to get it open as well because of the heat and so that was a major redesign and they on the um, later version of the command module the ones that actually went to the moon they had a hatch that opened to the outside and uh, it actually had um, an emergency um, mechanism that allowed it to open very quickly. Also, uh, the environment, which in Apollo 1 was pressurized with 100% oxygen, the uh, ratio of that was changed so there was more of a oxygen-nitrogen mixture and so it was still more oxygen. It was about 60-40. So, um, but then as they went into space, as they accelerated through the atmosphere, um, the pressure inside the spacecraft decreased, and so they ended up breathing. They still breathed pure oxygen once they were in space, but the pressure wasn't nearly as great as it was at liftoff, and uh, that made the fire hazard a lot less. So 100% oxygen is um, going to make anything that can burn will can anything that can burn is going to burn like crazy yeah. so yeah i mean it's something that they still have to worry about today so sure it's you know at least we've learned what we can you know how to mitigate where we can so that you know that's definitely something that good that came from that even all these years later it's still a very sobering experience to mm -hmm. read about this mission or to visit um, the launch pad where the fire happened. It's still right. just, you know, an unsettling experience sometimes. Absolutely. All right, so Brad, we started off talking about Apollo 1, um, and now we're gonna talk a little bit about um, two more recent missions, uh, the Challenger um, explosion as well as Columbia. Let's start off with Challenger. It was okay. a little bit of a chilly morning there in Florida, just like it was here um, in Hutchinson this morning. It was. You know, let's talk a little bit about how that played in with the O-ring, the infamous O-ring. Okay. Well, the uh, O-rings that separated the different sections of the solid rocket boosters uh, were not rated. They weren't tested below about 54 degrees. So, that morning uh, was really cold, and uh, prior to that, engineers had been concerned about the O-rings and whether they were going to be able to withstand those. So if you think about what happens with rubber, when it gets cold, it gets brittle, it gets hard, it can crack, and so uh, there was there was actually ice on the launch pad that morning, and they had to uh, spend time out there de-icing. And uh, you think about Florida down at uh, Kennedy Space Center, that's not a place that normally gets that cold, so that was a really very chilly morning for that, and the shuttle had not launched in that kind of cold before, and so yeah, there was there was real concern. So yeah, it's a little bit different climate down there. The Russians launch in cold weather all the time, but right. the shuttle wasn't really ever meant to handle that type of extreme cold. Right. 
this flight was really notable and there was I mean, millions of people watching it mm -hmm. um, because of Krista McAuliffe. Mm -hmm. She was the first teacher flying into space. Right. And you had school kids around the country. You had families. You had her parents even in the crowd there watching, right. watching the liftoff. So that's, you know, the Challenger launch was was really it was it was really difficult for a lot of people because nobody was expecting that to happen just what was like 70 something seconds into the right. flight right teachers in space the education value you know that would have been great to have her up there doing that education from space all that stuff so it was just really just tragedy that that ever happened yeah, absolutely Yes, uh, and the O-rings, uh, they had, I mean, there had been some ruptures and some issues before, and it was one of those things that the engineers kind of determined was uh, an acceptable risk. And so they, they knew there were problems with it. And there were people that were very outspoken that said, we, we shouldn't have even, we shouldn't even be flying. We should not fly this day uh, because of the cold and because of yeah. danger to the O-rings. And, so there were definitely warnings. Yeah. Well, and in the aftermath, you had the Rogers Commission, which was a presidential commission that was going over the causes of the failure. Um, what, do you, what do you think we learned from the aftermath of the Challenger disaster? Well, probably the biggest lesson is to just not become complacent. And, and um, you know, um, Gene Kranz basically said, we have to strive toward perfection. I mean, we just can't, we can't do any less than that. And to just not get shoddy with the work and uh, not just assume that um, something that might be a problem um, is gonna be okay. And uh, to not overlook these things that could cause potential catastrophes. Uh, you know. I, th I think it's, I think, you know, probably what happened is we'd, we'd had successful launches and I think that it's, um, it, it's easy to get complacent when you, when you have uh, continued success and it's like, okay, this is, things are going great. We're yeah. doing well here. And, uh, the go fever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and that, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Gene Krantz because the the whole tough but competent that plays into, you know, the risks and rewards of spaceflight in general. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a calculated risk. You're sitting on millions of pounds of oxidizer and Absolutely. fuel, so there's always a little bit of risk involved, no matter what the launch is. Right. There is, and the astronauts know that, and they accept that risk. They know that there is a very real possibility that they might not come home. And they do accept that risk, and they would they would want us to continue. Yeah. So that that is the prevailing attitude um, that I find among the astronauts is they want us to press on, even if even if they lose their lives, they wouldn't want us to stop because of that. We've we've talked about Challenger now. Let's let's uh, fast forward a couple decades to the Columbia disaster. Um, unlike Challenger, Columbia successfully launched, but during that launch, something happened that had happened on previous shuttle flights, but not to the severe extent that it did this time for Columbia. Uh, there was a piece of foam insulation that struck the leading edge of the wing. Let's talk a little bit about what happened with that mission. The external tank of the space shuttle, which provides the fuel for the three main space shuttle engines, uh, the tank is filled with liquid hydrogen 
and liquid oxygen, and those are cryogenic liquids, they're very, very cold. And so to prevent ice from forming on the, um, the external tank, it is uh, encased in a foam. So if you think about how light and airy foam would be, it uh, doesn't seem like something that could um, cause a problem, but on the way up, it wasn't uncommon for pieces of foam to fall off. And again, this, like, uh, like the O-rings before in Challenger, this became uh, an acceptable risk in the flights because it's foam, it didn't seem like it would be a real big problem, but a piece of foam did strike the leading edge of the wing. You have to remember that as the shuttle is going up, it's going thousands of miles an hour. Uh, it reaches 17,500 when it's in orbit, so uh, that incredible speed, when you, when you add that velocity to even something like a piece of foam, then it can do real damage. And so it did make a hole uh, probably six to ten inches in diameter in the leading edge of the wing, and so the entire time the astronauts were out in space in orbit, uh, doing their um, docking with the International Space Station, uh, their vehicle was crippled and that they had no way of knowing that. And so they were really doomed from that, from that time of launch. Um, when that foam hit, their, their mission was doomed and they really had no awareness of that. And so then as the vehicle came back into the atmosphere, all of that speed, that 17,500 mile per hour speed, um, all that speed has to go away so that when you come down and you land on the runway, you have a nice landing at about 200 miles per hour, and that happens in about 30 minutes. And so what happens is all that energy uh, that you attain during your orbit turns into heat as you come back into the atmosphere. Uh, the air gets superheated and uh, gets compressed in front of the vehicle and turns into a superheated plasma, which can reach up to, uh, the, the wingtips could reach up to 3,000 degrees. And so that superheated plasma went into that hole in the wing and melted the internal structure of the wing and uh, caused the vehicle to break apart. And so the pieces ended up landing over Texas, most of them over East Texas. And the astronauts, of course, perished in that mission yeah. as well. So, Well, in, in the aftermath of that, I remember we were driving it was on i think we were on like a christmas or not christmas vacation but we were on like a just a weekend trip out of school in the car with my mom and sisters and i remember hearing the breaking news come over the radio for that so for me that was the first time i had ever experienced something like that live so right. it was really you weren't expecting it with right. the regularity of the shuttle flights with just the number of missions they had it was something that just came out of nowhere for that. But at the same time, with the tile damage that previous missions had had, it wasn't really out of nowhere for, you know, the people at NASA. They they knew that the tile damage was a problem. They just didn't know the, the full extent until tragedy struck with Columbia. Right. Right. You know, one of the things they did to fix it uh, was when the shuttle would fly up to the space station, it performed that maneuver where it would just kind of flip around. Can kind you talk a, a little flop. bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, kind of when it flew up, basically it did kind of a belly flop. And um, so it turned so that the um, those on board the International Space Station could see its underbelly and then they could uh, photograph it with high resolution cameras and to see if there was any damage. And so. 
um, that was a way of, um, of just checking it out, making sure that the thermal protection system was all still intact and um, making it so that it would be safe to re-enter. I mean, that's good. You know, it's whenever there's a setback, it's NASA gets, I think, a bad reputation from the public. It's like, oh, there's just all these terrible things that are happening. But sure. clearly they saw that there's a problem and then they always would work to address it. So. Right. And they and they after Challenger and Columbia, there was a grounding for about two years mm-hmm. before they returned to flight. And they um, thoroughly investigated and determined what the causes were and came up with solutions and um, again it's it um, is a big wake-up call and that we can really never get complacent with uh, space flight uh, it's very dangerous so the launch and the landing are really the most dangerous aspects of it because launch um, you know you're sitting on like you said you're sitting on um, millions of pounds of high explosives and you're you're experiencing tremendous aerodynamic pressures as you go up through the atmosphere, and then as you come back into the atmosphere, you're experiencing the incredible heat of reentry, and so yeah, it's very, very dangerous. But worth it. It is worth it. Definitely worth it. And that's one of the things that I always have loved about the Cosmosphere, even though I didn't get to do any anything as a kid, is just the education and just making sure kids are inspired. Right. And that they see that there's just incredible things for us to do in space, being able to come here and learn about what astronauts have done, learn the history, learn the science. I think it's awesome. Absolutely. And that's uh, one of the things I love about working here is being able to work with kids and see that light go off in their eyes and get excited about science and a a possible career in uh, engineering or science or uh, maybe even being an astronaut. So it's it's great to be a part of that, and I see um, I've been here long enough to see um, people that came here as campers. They're now working out in the in the field, so it's it's pretty cool. One thing I will say too about our future rocketry is we are we're going away from the space shuttle. We're going to go back to a capsule design mm-hmm. like we had in Apollo, and that's actually a lot safer because the capsule is up on top of the rocket. And uh, in the event of an emergency, the whole capsule can be um, basically separated from the rocket and parachute down, whereas the space shuttle really never had an escape, um, way of escaping. Pretty interesting to think about. Um, You know, that's one of the things that, whether it's the Boeing Starliner, whether it's, you know, SpaceX with the Dragon, switching to that capsule design does give a little bit of extra margin for safety if we can still accomplish most of the things with those platforms you know i think it's a little bit a little bit better to go with that type of design so with the advancements in technology um i think you know when we compare that to apollo we're going to have much greater sensors and and, uh, computer technology to let people know there is a problem the need for an abort. That way we're not just relying on somebody pulling that. Right, exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, Brad, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it, and we're looking forward to having you on next show. Sure. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I've enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening to the show. Make sure you share and subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps even more people find out about the podcast. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Molnix. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on iTunes. If you do that, screenshot the review and send it to me at John Molnix, pretty much everywhere on the internet, and I'll shoot you a Space Shot sticker and a little thank you. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button, that way you don't miss any of the daily episodes. As always, the show notes have more information on today's episode. You can hit me up on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at John Molnix. I'm always up to chat. You can also connect with me on Facebook. Just search the space shot or click the link in the show notes. Tomorrow, LDF. I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side. <laughs>